in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, losers. It's Gabby Dunn. Back in your feeds and still, uh, yeah, bad with money. 
Fellow Deadbeats, welcome back to Bad With Money. It is season two, and I am so excited to kick off the second season because I really think you're going to love this first episode. It's about student loans. And like the rest of this season, it features a lot of me yelling at my guests about how this podcast is basically turning me into a socialist. But we will get there. Before we do, I want to take a minute to talk about how we're approaching this season, because so many of you took the time to send your thoughts on how we can do a better job of exploring the topics and issues around money that hit closest to your home. The main thing you're going to notice about this season is that it's going to be shorter than the first season. We're going to do 12 longer episodes instead of 24 shorter ones. And that's because we want to make sure that each one is more focused and wide-ranging and journalistic. Instead of exploring the particular journey of one guest, like we did on a lot of the shows last season, we're going to treat these episodes more like our Banks Are Evil episode, where I took a big confusing issue, told you all just how little I know about it, despite the fact that it influences basically everything in my life, and then brought on some experts to help me understand how the system works, why it's horrible and fucked up, and what we can do to change it. And along the way, we're going to keep incorporating your emails and voice memos like we did in the last episode. So please keep sending them to me at badwithmoney at slate.com. In general this season, you can expect to hear much less of a focus on the entertainment industry. Yeah, we heard you loud and clear on that. But there's going to be much more of a focus on how money corrupts and confuses pretty much everything. And whereas last season was a lot about me learning about my own ignorance about money, I like to call last season finances and feelings. These new episodes are going to turn the spotlight on the system as a whole. And still on me and my ignorance around money. (laughs) It wouldn't be bad with money if I didn't sound like a dum-dum at least two or three times an episode. If you think I'm a dumpster fire, wait until you hear about things like, I don't know, the fact that credit scores systematically reinforce heinous gender stereotypes or that the next financial crisis is going to be student loans. That's coming up. So basically, the theme of season two is, oh fuck, it is worse than we all thought. So please buckle up and follow me, your trusty train wreck, Gabby Dunn, because it's time to figure out why these things that seem so evil and confusing actually are evil and confusing. I'm mad as hell, y'all, and I'm not going to fake it anymore. So as I mentioned before the break, today's show is about student loans. And that's partially because I can confidently say from my own experience that student loans are the worst. I currently have around $30,000 in them, as does my little sister. She went to a state school. I went to a private college. And we are both screwed. In November, due to the ongoing struggle that is my parents' financial situation, to be slightly vague about that, I took on paying back my own loans. And I asked my mom, would it be helpful if I paid my own student loans? And she said yes, which, by the way, Up until like last year, I had no idea what my student loans were. I had no idea whether they were private or federal. I didn't even know how to log on to the student loan website. I didn't know what Nelnet or Naviant even were. Um, And my mom was doing all that. And my parents, you know, it's very typical of them to sort of try to hide any kind of debt situation from me. Thank you for calling Nelnet, your student loan servicer. Thank you for calling Nelnet. My name is Brandy. Can I please have your first and last name and date of birth? Gabrielle Dunn. And it's... All right. How can I help you? Um, I get these emails that say that my payments are past due. And I was just wondering if that mattered at all. Like if there was a record of that or if there were problems with not paying it on the exact date. 
Um, say if you were applying for a forgiveness that requires on-time payments, that could affect something like if you like the forgiveness. Oh, so my mom who pays it says, oh, don't worry about those emails. I'll pay it in a week. But I'm worried like so the forgiveness would be a problem. Like I couldn't get that now because of the late <clears throat> payments. Correct. Because it wasn't paid on the due date. Sorry to, to ask just because I'm trying to prove a point to my mom. Uh, about being late did you did you have to pay student loans me I had one but it was very small and I actually paid it in full oh that's great what is mine just wondering what is this what is my account your balance as of today is four thousand nine hundred and forty one dollars and ninety eight cents okay my school cost a lot of money so the four thousand loan there is not the only loan so now I'm like okay where are the other loans interesting so yeah That call was March of last year, and that's why I've taken over my student loans. So now that that's added to what I pay every month is, uh, you know, $200 there, $200 there, $200 there to to pay student loans. Two of my loans are $2,000, and one is $26,000, I think. So, yeah, it adds up to about $30,000. And... You know, I had to look and read about interest and all this. I mean, at 28, I was just learning about a decision I made at 18. So we're also tackling this as the first topic because so many of you wrote to me with similar stories about how difficult a burden your student loans are. And I wanted to share a few of those messages here to sort of set the scene. And here to do that is a very good friend of mine who I wanted to read them for you is Stephanie Frosch, aka Ello Steph on YouTube. Hello. So a listener, Courtney, writes, I have amassed a great deal of student loan debt to the tune of 60,000-ish. Many accounts in collections, a car loan, I mean, it's totally embarrassing. 2016 ended with my wages being garnished due to a defaulted student loan. So let's just say I'm not proud or happy. I'm stuck in a job that I can't stand, mostly because at $14 an hour, it is one of the highest paying jobs in the area. And companies also aren't huge on diversity around here. Take my wife, for example. A former coworker put a dead rat in her car and screamed, dyke at her. Totally fun, right? Needless to say, I feel trapped and overwhelmed. A listener, Alana, says, I am currently a graduate student getting a doctoral degree. I came straight into my current program from undergrad. I am lucky enough that my parents can afford to help feed me and keep a roof over my head, but I'm still digging myself into a giant hole of debt. After undergrad, I had $20,000 in debt, and now I don't even know the number because I refuse to read the emails they send me. I won't have to start paying until after I graduate in a couple years, but due to my current loans being unsubsidized, I have another $10 to $20 added to my bill per day in interest. It will take me years upon years to pay off my loans, and my partner is in the same program with an even higher amount of loans to pay off as well. Louisa. Hi, Gabby. I'm Swiss, and here is actually a pretty shameful thing to have debt at all. Most people don't do student loans because the university fees are very low, and a lot of people still pay for the majority of things in cash, with the exception of big purchases. I'm not from a wealthy family, but we never had money problems. I also don't have a credit card because I'm terrified of spending more than I have, and I strictly separate my spendings and savings accounts. I'm aware that I'm in a privileged position more now than before. I think when I hear you talk about privilege, I realize that's really what I have. I don't have to worry about money, so I just assume most people don't have to worry about it. 
Listener Ella Saeed said, I'm nearly 40 and I work in the tech industry. I make a pretty decent salary, about $80,000, but I live paycheck to paycheck because my minimum payments on my credit card debt add up to $1,500 a month. I left grad school with $80,000 in student debt and I made those payments religiously, but I also felt like I worked all the time and so I should be able to afford nice things, so I bought them on credit cards. The minimum payments have me in this horrible cycle where I can't save anything up. It's really frustrating. So as we've said so many times on this show, it seems really bleak and isolating. And what I'd like to do now is see if we can figure out whether it's possible to improve this situation for anyone. I mean, do we fix it after the fact by trying to figure out ways to pay back our loans? Do we get out ahead of it? It depends on where you are in your life. I'm ready to burn the system to the ground. But first, let's hear some experts out. We're going to start by talking to Kelly Peeler. Kelly's the founder of something called NextGenVest, which she'll explain in the interview. She thinks there's a way for students to head off debt at the pass, which is to say she's got the audacity of hope. Remember that, guys? Remember when we had hope? Okay, let's talk to Kelly. My name is Kelly Peeler. I'm the founder and CEO of NextGenVest.com. We're the money mentor for every student. We help um, Gen Z uh, navigate their biggest financial decision, student loans, all over text message. Um, and just for reference, uh, about 1.4 million students every year uh, overpay for college to the tune of about $2.7 billion because they fill out financial aid forms incorrectly and end up taking out more in student loans than they need to. How bad is the student debt problem? Like, why did this hit you as something to work on? Um, I'm a big believer that the next financial crisis in the U.S. will be rooted in the student loan market, primarily because I studied the history of financial crises at Harvard um, during the last or during the housing crisis. Um, so really kind of got my hands dirty um, researching and studying the last 250 years worth of financial crises. And I was working at J.P. Morgan after college and, you know, working on an investment portfolio that kind of touched student loans or higher education and just saw a lot of the predatory practices that were happening um, that really mirrored similar leading indicators to um, the housing crisis or previous financial crises. So, number one, primary leading indicator of a consumer financial crisis is a change in consumer identity. So, right now, to be an American and part of the American dream is to go to college. Um, just like in 2006 and 2007, to be an American, a successful American, was to own, you know, like two homes and like five cars and that type of thing. Home ownership was part of the American dream and identity. And the reason why I say that's important is because once um, some type of economic decision is tied to how you view, you view your own success, it makes you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you basically have really weird economic decision-making patterns that basically make absolutely no sense because it's tied to your identity. The second is a mispricing of risk within a particular like asset class. So right now, that's loans. So what are loans tied to? They're tied to the cost of higher education. Um, college costs have gone up 1,000% in the past 30 years. It's one of the only things that have risen higher than the rate of inflation um, out of like anything. Compare that to the mispricing of risk of um, the housing crisis. So everyone thought housing would always go up, which is obviously not true. Um, so there's a mispricing of risk there. And then the last really like the third bucket or leading indicator is a lack of broad-based consumer protection. 
So like those forms that I was talking about, they're, you know, it, they, by the way, once you get a form from a college, it doesn't say like the interest rate on the loans next to it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even categorize the loans sometimes as saying that you owe the money. It sometimes is categorized as aid. So that paperwork in itself is like really misleading. The paperwork of, of a student taking out loans and not fully understanding what they're signing up for, that's misleading. Compare that to the paperwork of people taking out mortgages and getting adjustable rate mortgages that when the interest rates flew through the roof, people were like, how did this happen? Like, it wasn't in the documentation. And so that's really the, the consumer protection side and is really kind of aided by um, lack of regulation is really kind of the third dynamic. So what is the current state of the student loan market right now? $1.4 trillion is owed um, in student loans. So that's more than mortgages and credit cards combined in terms of outstanding debt, which is just like massive. Um, So really those three leading indicators are really troubling because you have people making weird decisions that don't make any economic sense for themselves because it's socialized. And I mean, by the way, that's not like an accident, right? Like in marketing, excuse me, colleges spend like millions of dollars on marketing to students to say, like, this is the American dream. Look at this really nice campus that you can spend all your time at and, like, wear, you know, like, J. Crew outfits on. Um, it, it's, it's literally selling a dream to students. Um, and that's why we say that if you are getting, if you're getting marketed to, you should treat that purchase like you're a consumer, just like you would treat, you would be a consumer of, like, buying clothes, for example. So what are some of the predatory practices? You know, there's tens and tens and tens of thousands of students across the U.S. who are navigating, you know, seven pieces of paperwork, a hundred different, like, you know, financial questions to fill out things like the FAFSA, and they're doing it all by themselves at 18 years old. So just the process in itself is incredibly complex, like the paperwork and all of that. Um, So that's kind of bucket number one. Bucket number two is when a student will get... Um, financial aid packages from the university. So they get into college, which is great, and they're excited. They'll get a financial aid award letter, which is essentially um, a breakdown of their scholarships. There's grants, there's loans. Um, and the kind of predatory thing in our opinion is that this is all called an award letter. So for a student who's not familiar with how loans work, um, it's really confusing to see loans bucketed as aid, um, and we deal with a ton of students who think that they don't have to pay loans back because just in the terms of the categorization on the forms, um, which we think is really misleading. So that's kind of bucket number two. And then bucket number three is just like the overwhelming amount of options that students are signing up for and how to service their loans. So um, we deal with a ton of students that like never actually log in to their accounts online to see how much they owe during college. And then they'll Mm -hmm. be surprised (laughs) when they graduate to say, oh, you owe $60,000 and here's the interest accumulation. I had no idea. Like when I was going to college, I never, I don't know what the paperwork was. I never looked at anything. I didn't know how much anything cost. My parents filled it out. Nobody sat down to talk to me about how much it was going to cost. And there was this big push of like, oh, I got into this school and your high school kind of pushes you to accept these more fancier schools so that they can say, oh, we have kids going to Stanford and Harvard and and stuff like that. And then you feel, I mean, it's just crazy that it's like asking 18 year olds to pay this much for something and it's never talked about. The 
average college counselor ratio in the U.S. is one college counselor to 500 kids. So imagine if you're like shy and, you know, you don't have a great relationship with that one person, um, you're fighting for the attention across 500 kids, like you might not even get a meeting with them. So, you know, we were available at 11 o'clock at night on like a Sunday. And so we really push students to understand the, the steps, understand the forms and actually fully understand what they're signing themselves up, um, up for and make the best decision possible. What are some options that they have that students are not aware of? One is that um, students do not fill out the FAFSA. And the FAFSA is essentially like the main form that uh, allows you to access free federal aid, so meaning money from the government that you do not have to pay back. Um, so this takes the shape of things like Pell Grants, um, and students won't fill this out for a variety of reasons. One is um, they might think that their families are too wealthy. There's no income cap, so you, you like, have no... Um, risk of like applying and not getting any, so you might as well try. The second reason why they might not apply is just because the forms are so complex. So recently, um, if you saw on the news, the IRS, this like tool online that helps you pull in your tax forms is basically deactivated, <laughs> which like just makes it even more impossible to like hook up your tax forms um, to the FAFSA. And then what else do students not know? They don't know that um, they can actually negotiate their college tuition. So we help um, students write a, and customize appeal letters to um, negotiate their financial aid packages. And last spring, we helped students get $260,000 more um, that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. That blew my mind that you can negotiate. Yeah. Your... Wait, what? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a guarantee, but you might as well try. And we've had a lot of success with it. And so the process and what it looks like is, once you get into a bunch of colleges, you'll get those financial aid packages and you can go to the financial aid office and say things like, hey, you know, my parent lost their job or we have huge medical bills or like I got into a lot of other really great schools, um, you know, but I really want to come to yours. Is there any way that you can bump up my financial aid? I, at least as a student um, going into college, like, I didn't understand the power dynamic. I thought they had all the yeah. power and I had no power. But it seems like what yeah. you've been talking about is that the student actually has more power than they think. Yeah, and I mean, they should, right? Like, if you think about buying a house, and I think I gave you a similar example. If you think about buying a house, you know, you might buy, you might pay $200,000 for a house. How much is a college education these days? Around $200,000. So just like you would negotiate the price of a house, you should think about treating your college education like a consumer. Um, a college can certainly rescind acceptance for things like dropping, you know, like if you tank your senior spring in grades or if you get arrested or things like that. But they can't if you just appeal your financial aid package. So um, we really encourage students to, to be consumers of their of their higher education. This is a crazy thing to put on kids. So this is a big thing. Like one of the things that I'm struggling with now in this second season of the podcast is that, a lot of it was like about understanding and functioning within the system, but then also coming to this realization that like everything is flawed and terrible. Um, yeah. So yeah. like, yeah. what is your take on that? Cause you're like trying to help these students become financially literate to like navigate their way out of college. But then also like it's, it seems like it's created to, to mess them up. One of the things that we really try to do, whether it's over text message um, or, you know, more broadly in the media is, sort of destigmatize the loneliness and anxiety that students feel when they go through this process. So 
um, you know, imagine, I mean, like everyone may be listening to this, being an 18-year-old kid, a little bit hormonal, um, you're super excited to go to college, you've been told that this is what the American dream is, and you're like, wait a second, this crap is really confusing, and you feel like you're stupid. And so what we really try to do is to say, actually, this system is stupid. <laughs> it's designed really not very well. It's actually pretty predatory. So once you kind of remove a little bit of the shame, loneliness, and anxiety for students, then it's like, okay, now that I know that it's kind of a system rigged against me, how can I navigate myself through it? You know, once you sign on the dotted line with loans, you can never default on them, meaning that you can never really escape them. Um, so, you know, you get into a ton of credit card debt, you declare bankruptcy, which basically means like your credit score is ruined, but you can kind of like pass that debt on and move on from it. You cannot do that with student loan debt. It will follow you forever. And what do you, how do you feel about like the whole student loan forgiveness thing that's been going on? Or like, do you think that's reason, that's a thing that could happen? I personally do not think that student loan forgiveness will be a huge thing under this administration, right. given like the current, you know, activities that are going on. Um, I think that there will be a crowding out of the federal market, which basically means that there will be more private loans from banks issued. Um, so I think that there will be less regulation around all this stuff. In those situations, if there's less regulation, that means there's less protection for students. Um, so that means that they need to be even more aware and, like, take ownership of this thing for themselves. Okay, great. I'm going to go scream into a jar. <laughs> more Bad With Money coming up after the break. So Kelly's got a lot of ideas for how students can proactively take control of their financial situation before things get out of hand. But what if you've already made your deal with the devil? What if you've graduated from college, can't find work, or are barely making ends meet, and you're staring down a mountain of loans that you only took out in the first place to avoid being out of work or underemployed by not having a college degree? Eugenia Kim is an organizer with a group called the Angry Alumni Association, and she says a lot of loans are given in bad faith and should be forgiven outright. The Angry Alumni are alums who, though we may or may not have student debt ourselves, we are quite frankly a little pissed off that the U.S. government, universities, uh, the higher education sphere just generally let us get to this point in the economy where we have $1.2 trillion in student debt and we can't realistically pay it back. Why is college so expensive? Is the main problem that people keep going to expensive colleges and thinking that that inherently has value? Tuition has risen across the board, regardless of whether or not you're at a public school, whether you went to a private college, uh, even whether you go to a state school. Tuition has risen over 100 percent in the past, like, 20 years, quite frankly. Why do they need that much money? That depends on who you ask. They'll tell you we need to continue to uh, raise tuition to provide more services, uh, get new student centers, provide better um, resources to students, and we need uh, university needs uh, to raise tuition to be financially healthy and stable. Government has continuously cut funding to higher education across the country, both federal government and uh, individual states. Uh, so private, more elite colleges. They're now almost a profit-driven model, right? Because they need, um, instead of being publicly funded, they need to offset that loss in budget with 
donations from wealthy alumni, wealthy students who will pay full tuition. So um, as a result, they want to bring in more students. They want to bring in wealthy students. And how do they compete for these students? Well, they take on big expansion projects. They have shiny new dorms. They build new rec centers. And arguably, I don't know that a shiny new dorm is going to make biology 101 that much more engaging. I don't necessarily know that having a rock climbing gym available to me, not that I would ever use it, I don't know that that really has a big impact on my cultural studies class. So that's definitely happening on one end of the spectrum. And then there's this other sort of rise of a different kind of college slash university, which is the rise of a for-profit college. And for-profit colleges have only started to rise in this pa- in these past, like, 20 to 30 years. So, obviously, like, a lot of this comes from the, the 2016 presidential campaign. I know Occupy started a lot of stuff, and then, mm-hmm. like, Occupy kind of gave birth to Bernie Sanders in his campaign. And, um, and there was a lot of debate about whether college should be free or at least heavily subsidized. Uh, and people seemed to, like, act like this was some big revolutionary idea. But angry alumni kind of thinks that, that higher education is a public benefit, right? Which I agree with. I think the more educated people are, like the less of a class system it it becomes, you mm-hmm. know? Well, at least for me growing up, the rhetoric that I sort of heard from everyone, or adults around me, was go to college, you'll get a good job. Um, but the idea of education being tied up with liberation is something that I think we also need to push as well. But people who went to these fancy schools are still like living at home, unable to find jobs. And then they now they have debt, too. Yeah. And if they're sitting at home, unable to find jobs, other students who come from like for profit colleges, for example, are also going to be sitting at home, unable to find jobs. Yeah. And all the way down the line. And so, so it's really is- about thinking, like, what is the nature of work in this country as it exists now? And that's like mm-hmm. an, a, a separate sort of economic question that I think we fundamentally need to address because there are no jobs. Can you explain what's the difference between a public college and a for-profit college? Sure. It's essentially the difference between a for-profit college and any other college is it's simply a tax designation, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Most colleges are 501c3 organizations, meaning they're tax-exempt. They also have nonprofit status. For-profit colleges and universities... Uh, have a different incentive model, which means they exist as completely separate different entities than a normal college, Um, Mm. which is to say they're motivated by profit, they're functioning, um, and making education a business, which is to say Mm. they have to constantly be growing, constantly expanding and bringing in more students and cutting overhead costs. So somebody might say, like, okay, you can help people get an education and also – make a profit off of it. What's what's seemingly wrong with that? It's when you look into various levels of incentive structure that drives people in order to make a successful for-profit college. By definition, it means that you have to cut costs in the very education you're seeking to give to these students and bringing in more and more students and charging higher and higher tuition to them. I guess what's more insidious to me is these schools that are getting like huge donations mm. and then you go and then mm-hmm. you graduate and and then you're like still being asked to donate 
Like, you can't find a job. You went to this very prestigious school, right. and then they're like, can you donate money? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure, like, you just put in, like, 500 new basketball hoops. But, like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I think there's, on one hand, on one extreme end, there's wealth hoarding going on. Looking at these individual colleges and institutions can almost be a mirror for what's happening with individuals in the American economy, right? You have a few schools that have a lot of money, just a lot of money, and an astronomical amount, quite frankly. And mm-hmm. um, when we say, like, oh, there's no money in higher education, we're not funding schools, why don't we just redistribute some of that? Because Harvard isn't going to spend its billion dollars that it's got <laughs> sitting in its endowment anytime soon. Perhaps, I don't know, the community college down the street where yeah. people are trying to get an education. Yeah, And it's like this normalization of shitting on them, of being like, mm. oh, you're going, like, I'm from Florida, right? <laughs> oh, you're going to BCC? Like, ugh, gross. Like I'm, go- I'm like, I'm going to Vassar or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there was this, like, very clear class system in my high school where like the poor, like oh you're going to FAU like you must be poor like it was nuts yeah and now it's like those and then it's like okay great but you're 18 you have no concept of how much you're going to be paying in student loans later like but everyone pushed this this kind of like doing better than the Joneses thing you mm-hmm. know I'm convinced you're not going for the education you're going for the like alumni network later mm-hmm. you're going for the prestige you're going Ugh. for the connections you're going for the fact that. And it's all been normalized. Yeah, more rich alumni who are employed at this prestigious university will get me a job at insert X prestigious firm later. Completely untrue. People are like, oh, well, they're going to look at your resume and see that you went to school. Maybe, but probably not. Yeah, I always joke nowadays that, like, colleges have turned into, like, degree-granting factories where they just print out fancy pieces of paper and put a stamp on it that says some people have respected this institution and we say that this person is um, has gone through our education process and we think that like they're pretty cool and you should probably hire them later. You're buying a degree. So there's the lower income people and they see going to college as like, a oh, you know, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. It's really important that I go to college or like, you know, this is my ticket out of this sort of socioeconomic class that I'm in to go to college which is like great and also a lot of jobs do require a college degree but then there it's just a cycle all over again because they still have to pay debt because they want to go to that college and mm-hmm. the sky, and the financial aid isn't enough not only is sometimes financial aid uh not enough our new current lovely administration that we have is going to make further cuts so like i got a work study scholarship when i went to university and mm-hmm. that itself is like you know it You can get that money, but you have to work for it, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so Trump's new budget plan is going to cut a lot of funding that would benefit students who are in work-study programs like I was. And so that in itself is still like, well, I have to work to get this scholarship to begin with. Yeah, you can't just go to school. You have to go to school. I had to, yeah, I was on an academic scholarship, which meant I had double the course load Mm -hmm. of my other, so like 30 of us in my class had extra classes and extra like papers to write and stuff to go to school on top of like whatever else. Right. Which is to say that for low income folks who the only way that they can go to college is by getting these scholarships, they have to jump through additional hoops to get the same education of their peers who um, 
are lucky enough to be able to, to to not need it, right? To not need those things. Yeah. That's great. Like if you can if you're rich and you can just afford to come here, like you should do you should also do less work. <laughs> yeah. What prompted the shift to not for profit private and public colleges being treated like corporate institutions? Sure. So technically they're not driven by profit, right? So they have to get sneaky about it. When you measure the financial health of um, an institution, specifically universities, like you'd probably look to the, the endowment as one of the first sort of indicators of like a, ro- a financially healthy college. Um, the bigger of an endowment you have, a bigger cushion you have, the more financially stable you are. So the people who are managing universities' endowments is usually, depending on if it's public or private, a board of directors or a board of trustees, but ultimately you have people who are oftentimes not a part of the university and are usually very wealthy um, individuals, oftentimes tied to the financial sector because they purportedly have expertise on how to best manage a university's financial health, right? And so as a result, when the U.S. economy is becoming more and more financialized, universities also follow this trend and as a result have entered into sometimes problematic deals with various uh, financial institutions, big banks, hedge funds. They invest their endowment, usually a proportion of their endowment, uh, into various investments. And sometimes those deals can be good for the financial health of the university, um, and sometimes they can be bad. Sometimes there's an asymmetry of information in which universities are being taken advantage of by financiers and large banks. Sometimes... Oh, fun! Yeah, sometimes, though, there are individuals on the board of trustees, sometimes who you can point to and say, like, also happen to work for big banks themselves or various agencies. So I'm about to throw <laughs> my headset. Are you kidding me? Oftentimes, and this isn't for all universities, but I'm just saying, if you take a look. At what point yep. are the students important? I'm just curious. <laughs> like, I mean, at what point is it a school about teaching students? When you look at the actual sort of like admissions booklet that you'd get technically all the time, right? This shiny pamphlet that you get in the mail for like recruiting new students. I remember going to a ton of like recruitment fairs and things like that. And all the admissions agents would sort of come up and tell me like, oh, look at how much we care about our students. We've got XYZ programs and we really cater to your individual need. And that, I mean, for... $50,000 a year, yeah, you better be doing that sort of thing. But why do I have to pay $50,000 a year? I mean, does it make sense? Does Bernie's whole thing about forgiveness make, is that like a practical thing? I think it could really be a practical thing. Especially, Where's the money come from, though? So, actually... (laughs) It comes from, like, Melania moving into the goddamn (laughs) White House. (laughs) But also, the whole, like, where does the money come from question, nobody asks that question when... Um, there's a national security crisis. Nobody asks that question when it's time to go to war. We just say, like, mm-hmm. no, we'll figure that out later. Like, this is something that needs to happen now, and we can find the money and finance things later. We were fine for every major war that we've been in thus far. And nobody asked I mean, along right? the Right? Like, nobody asked along the way before we went to Iraq, like, wait, hold on. Where are we going to get the money from? This was great and interesting and... Um kills me uh thank you so thank Thank you so much 
for coming on and allowing me to yell at you. <laughs> anytime, anytime, seriously. <laughs> So the last thing I want to talk about on the show today is the perceived value of a college education. All through high school, going to college is held up as this beacon of promise. If you can just do well enough to get in, your whole life will change in ways you can't even imagine, and you'll put yourself in a position to have a rewarding future, literally and figuratively. But as many of you who wrote in are well aware, that's not how it works. Even if you go to a big, fancy school, you're not guaranteed a job. And the main reason for the disconnect between what college is supposed to be and what it actually is, is money. You get out of school and all the idealized visions of your future you've spent the last four years cultivating gets washed away in a tidal wave of rent payments, or in my case, lack thereof, resulting in fun things like panic attacks or tearful phone calls to your parents or to debt collectors, and as I've told you before, pawning of my family heirlooms. My guest for this segment is Josh Radner. You probably know Josh from his work as Ted on How I Met Your Mother, or if you're a nerd, on the PBS historical drama Mercy Street. Josh also writes and directs films and plays music, and he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say about the liberal arts, as evidenced in his 2012 film called Liberal Arts. I should point out that he and I don't agree on everything, but we had a great conversation on the heels of Trump's potential cutting of the National Endowment of the Arts, and he's very insightful when it comes to the role that college plays in our cultural subconscious. You actually, like, have a movie called Liberal Arts? Yeah, I do. Uh, (laughs) And so there's a part that Sam... Um, was playing for me earlier where you're talking about the investment of getting a liberal arts education. I think one of the things I love the most about being here was the feeling that anything was possible. It's just infinite choices ahead of you. You you get out of school and anything could happen. And then you do get out and life happens, you know, decisions get made and then all those many choices you had in front of you are no longer really there at a certain point you just gotta go oh i guess this is how it's going down and there's just something a little depressing about that well don't you think you're romanticizing youth a bit much you know because it's it's just as hard and annoying to be young as it is to be old i'm assuming not that you're old because you know you're not look I, i i get the whole we're all equal argument and it's kind of true but it's also kind of not true like okay i feel different now than i felt when i was here and i hate to break this to you but so will you so you're saying things suck i should prepare myself for suckiness no a liberal arts education solves all your problems thank god worth every penny (laughs) Is that like reflecting on your own feelings about post? No, that that life? wasn't exactly. I mean, I do have a dig where um, Zibby asks Jesse, my character, you know, what did you major in? And, and my character said um, history with a uh, minor in English or philosophy. And he, he says just to make sure I was fully unemployable. So there's a kind of self-aware yeah. idea that like, yeah, 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 this is this is the joke. And yet um, the the thing that he's talking about. It's actually a bigger idea than the utility of a of a liberal arts degree. It's more it's more this idea that um, when you step out into the world, out of you know, you kind of leave the the halls of of academia. Mm-hmm. It feels like anything could happen. Like like any it could go any way. But the more choices you make, your path gets a little more solidified. The grooves get a little deeper, mm-hmm. and you and things narrow. Possibility narrows. Your options just narrow. And there was a sadness to me in 
giving up the space of all possibility for um, definite decisions and um, conclusive things happening. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was, I, I call it, an, you know, there's this kind of sad narrowing that happens. But I think that it doesn't matter. Uh, you don't have to be in the arts for that to happen. I mean, everyone has a version of that, I think. You know, youth is both maddening and exciting because of the same reason, you know, that anything could happen. So Yeah, and then you have little disappointments. You have little disappointments. You have losses along the way. You have small triumphs. You want it to be yeah. moving faster. Then it starts moving faster, and you're like, whoa, whoa, slow down. I mean, you can't win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, well, so wait, what did you major in at Kenyon? I ended up being a drama major, but it was a very broad... I, I mean, I took... I I actually got most of my drama credits off campus at a theater program I did uh, my junior year. Um, And my my drama credits at Kenyon were much more academic, you know, history of theater, 17th and 18th century theater. And then Mm -hmm. I just took broadly across, um, you know, I got my one science credit because I'm not a science guy. Um, And then I mostly took all the stuff we're making fun of. You know, I took history and philosophy. And were you worried about graduating? Or like what you were going to do. Oh, I thought you meant if I was going to graduate. I was like, no, no, no. I was, no, no. Okay. Um, <clears throat> was I worried about? N- no, I, I had a really strong um, sense of where I was headed. I, I knew I wanted to. Um, I had this really strong sense I wanted to go to NYU in particular. I had met a number of uh, actors from that program and they said to me, you're, you're the right vibe for that school. I think that they would like you there. And for some reason, I just got it in my head like I'm going to NYU. And if I didn't get into NYU... I had this kind of half-baked idea that I would just move to New York and see what happened. But I did get in, so I never had to go down that route. A lot of people that listen right in and they talk about going to grad school and stuff and how it's like another, you know, another investment in terms of money stuff and like another, you know, how college is this big emotional and intellectual commitment. And then it's also this financial investment. And then you get out of gra- like the next part, grad school, and you're st- and you're like, Okay, now I spent like double the yeah. money, like this better work out. Yeah. I do know a lot of people um, who didn't go to college and, and just started taking acting classes in New York or L.A. Mm-hmm. and are terrific and really smart, um, nimble, amazing artists. Um, I don't think you need to go to film school to, um, to be a, a filmmaker, especially now that you can make a film on your phone. So. Right. I think that I think that the the barriers to entries, especially in the arts, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. You don't need a degree, you don't need a postgraduate degree to work in show business. But so, why do you have one? Well, I actually had one in a way to um, appease my very nervous father, because my dad was, you know, they, my parents like their. I think their overriding goal was me not being homeless. So I yeah. think that. The idea that I would get an MFA and could teach and maybe even teach at the college level gave my dad oh. a certain level of comfort because I was always trying to slightly trick him into letting me ride this acting thing out a little bit longer than he yeah. was comfortable with. Um, and every time I would, you know, reach another kind of plateau, it would, he'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this thing is still happening. <laughs> so in some ways, I think I even wanting to declare a drama major at Kenyon. I, I use that as a negotiating tactic. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go to grad school and uh, and I'll be able to teach if it doesn't, if, if the other stuff doesn't work out. Were you paying off loans when you finally like got something? No. And that's a, that's a, that's a huge um, kind of gift. Like my, my family, my grandfather sold cars for 
most of you know uh, like mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years um he was a chevrolet you know he sold chevrolets in, in cleveland and my father my father actually went to kenyan also and when my dad was in his mid to late 30s maybe late 30s he was already a partner at his law firm my grandfather came over one day he lived in cleveland but we lived in columbus and he came over one day and he said uh well, I finally paid off your last college loan today. And my father had no idea that my grandfather was paying off loans for, you know, 20 years. And it was this, it it kind of took on this mythic status in my family, that story, just that my grandfather um, just quietly, you know, decided, and my father didn't even want to go to Kenyon, um, but my grandfather came and looked at it and he said, no, this is what a college should look like. And in fact, I think my dad didn't even have the grades to get in there. My grandfather kind of talked his way in there. I think he had cigars with the admissions officer or something, the dean of admissions. And the next thing, my dad was the last person accepted in the class um, and then ended up doing really well there. But, um, I, you know, my the deal in my family was the longer, as long as you wanted to stay in school, that my parents would pay for it. So I was in the very, very, very fortunate, not to be taken for granted position of leaving NYU without debt. And I think that leaving without debt did allow me to walk into audition rooms with a slightly less burdened feeling, you know? Yeah, with the um, less of a desperation. Yeah, yeah. Because there were classmates of mine leaving with 70, 80, 100 grand uh, in debt, you know, also combined with some undergrad debt. And, um, you know, that kept them up at night. You know, it's the j- first joke that people make often with, um, with, cu- with like people complaining about student loans, right? As they go, oh, what do you do? You study English? You study theater? Like, oh, I got a theater degree. You know, like that's the first easy joke to make right. in terms of like you didn't get, you know, you didn't study. You should have studied engineering. You should have studied something useful. But I think that's like a false premise too, because those kids are also not. Like those kids are right, also not and then let's jobs. say you know, don't they say that people switch jobs and careers something like five to eight times throughout their life? So mm-hmm. someone who studies engineering isn't necessarily going to be an engineer. But what are the qualities that one might be looking for in terms of hiring? You know, um, an English major uh, is capable of critical thinking. They're capable of creative thinking. They're capable of uh, articulating problems. They're capable of. Um, you know, having a conversation, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. being able to be open to new ideas. I mean, all these things that the humanities and the arts teach us are incredibly applicable in the job market, I think. Yeah, when I did improv in New York, half the people in the classes were like business people trying to learn how to better communicate or talk, oh, yeah. you know, through improv. I just listened to this unbelievably great. Um, do you ever listen to On Being with Krista Tippett? The no. Podcast? It's terrific. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Um my second thing. Get it. You're trying you're trying to get on every podcast. <laughs> yeah, I am, it's true. Um I wonder if there's a record. Um <laughs> but uh I, I just listened to her uh interview, I think it was from a couple years ago, but with the poet David White. Um and it's unbelievable. <laughs> like every I was you know, I want to write everything he said down because he's <laughs> a great mind. But he was asked to um start lecturing to or teaching to corporate America. And a guy who approached him to come into the corporate world had heard him speak and heard him read some of his poems. And he said something like, the language that we have in corporate America is too small for the territory we're currently covering. Like we're, mm. we're, we're going into people's lives and they're invading their social systems and our language is kind of constricted and, and asphyxiated and it's just too small. So we need, your language is, is what we need to discuss what we're doing and maybe even reorient what we're doing. Um, and, and that's fascinating. Like corporate America is reaching out to a poet 
to mm. reflect back to them, like say, what are we doing here? There's this idea in, a, in this free market economy that like everything has to have a market-based utility, like everything. Mm. And if it's not measurable somehow, that it's worthless. And it's really hard to measure the value of like what a drama teacher gave you by having you step into a different version of yourself as a, as a high school student, as a 16-year-old. Mm. It's, it's, it's hard to mark that. But mm-hmm. the high schooler will tell you something changed in me, something shifted in me, my sense of myself, my sense of possibility, my, my, uh, you know, the horizon line got like bigger for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't measure that in a standardized test, but it's certainly valuable. You know, I don't, I just wonder like, what is the end game in the kind of arts, fun, you know, slashing world where it's like, we should just be these kind of automaton, you know, good test takers who just produce, 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 produce. It just feels yes. brutal to me. It feels like this brutal <laughs> vision of a society that's like absent any poetry. You said there was another dig in your movie Liberal Arts, but there's also the dig at the end of that conversation where you're like, oh, a liberal arts education solves all your problems and then you're like worth every penny. And that kind of has a lot to do with this episode. Um, was that just a little... I think it was more of an emotional thing that he um, had the best education money could buy and he was still kind of spinning his wheels and lost at 35. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, this thing that, um, well, if I have the degree from the fancy school, shouldn't I, shouldn't I know more what's going on? Shouldn't I know myself a little bit better? But I find, you know, who knows themselves at 18 or 22? It's, it's this kind of thing where he's poking fun at the, you know, he's doing a little cost benefit analysis. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know who I am and I'm confused. I don't even like my career. Was it was it worth it? Was all this stuff worth it? But I, I think, you know, that movie is really, on some level, a very robust defense of a liberal, liberal arts education. And it also points to its limits, you know, that, mm. that a life lived entirely in the mind, you know, kind of academically inclined. You're going to be missing a lot, you know, that mm-hmm. there's so much about life that has to do with heartbreak and emotion and disappointment, grief, joy, you know, all these things that you can read about, but you don't understand them entirely until you, um, you've lived a little bit more. And the way you live is by going out and, you know, getting dinged up a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. and so many of us are allergic to pain, but I found that like pain and heartbreak and loss and all those things are really terrific teachers if we let them do their work. One of the coolest things that I read recently is from our our former vice president's wife, Jill Biden. She said that community college is the most untapped resource in our country right now. And I remember when I was going to school, choosing schools, I was so snobby about it for no reason, for no reason. And it's because I fell victim to, I think, what is like a marketing campaign. You know, that this is better than this and this school is makes you a better person than this. And that's some classist bullshit that I am paying for now. (laughs) I think a lot of young people now, my guess is that a lot of high school kids now are sort of waking up to the reality of not wanting to have debt and are seeing what happened to the people that graduated. Like just, you know, I, when did I graduate? Eight. I went to college 10 years ago. Oh my God. Can we strike that from the record? (laughs) 
You'll still listen to the show if I'm old, right? So how am I going to pay my loans back? Slowly. Slowly and in small increments until uh, I die. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the first episode of season two of Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money this is the show for them. Also, tell your friends who've successfully exploited a broken system to enrich themselves on the backs of hopeful young minds. I guess that means they're good with money. Oh, God. Hashtag resist. We are part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week.